Well, that's such a powerful video. Uh, we just say amen, go home. You, but you know me better than that. Grace is a whole lot deeper than that, so we're going to dive into that today. And if you have your Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through the rest of that um, chapter. Uh, hopefully you picked up a bulletin. There, are, there is an outline in the bulletin, so you can follow along with the message notes. So the title of this message is Amazing Grace, and that title really comes from the song Amazing Grace. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name John Newton. John Newton was the one who authored that uh, hymn, Amazing Grace, which is the most recorded hymn and the most recorded song in all of history. And I think the reason is because we can so uh, identify with it. John Newton um, was the son of a sailing merchant, and by age 19, he was drafted into the British Navy. And while he was serving on a ship, he was um, severely um, abused and just kind of um, mistreated, horrible conditions, and so he deserted his post. He, he jumped ship. And finally, he was captured and brought back, and he was beaten some more, and then he he requested to be placed on one of the slave ships, and so he was. But even there, those who were his superiors not only abused the slaves, but they abused him. But over time, uh, as he kind of waited that out, he became the captain of his own ship. And so it was during a, one of his uh, voyages, uh, transporting slaves from um, uh, Syria of Le Leon to England, um, there was a huge storm that came about, kind of like with Jonah, you know, when Jonah was running from God and God sent this huge storm. Well, the storm was so massive that John Newton believed this was it. We're, we're not going to survive this storm. There is no hope left. And so this is the end of it all. And in the midst of that storm, thinking his life was about to end, he cried out to God. And he just simply cried out and said, Lord, please deliver us. And God got them through the storm, and as a result of God seeing them through the storm, John Newton knew the only reason he was still alive is because God had rescued him. Therefore, he, at that moment in time, gave his heart and his life to the Lord Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of his life. He, he called that day, and it was May the 10th in 1748, the day of a great deliverance. And so he felt so horrible and so bad and so self-condemned about captaining a slave ship when he walked away from the slave trade market. Uh, he was still just could not overcome this sense of condemnation of, of you know, this is what I've done and this is, this is the way I've treated people and mistreated them. And so it was an English pastor and evangelist, George Whitfield who took John Newton under his wing and taught him how to walk with God and how to share his faith with others. And a few years after that, um, John Newton began pastoring several, ch several churches in England. And it was during that time that he wrote that famous hymn that's still in our hymnals that we sing often, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine, found. I was blind but now I see. And so John Newton was trying to express how he saw himself, but what God did on his behalf in light of God's amazing grace. Now, if you're going to understand how amazing God's grace really is, 
then you have to understand how bad off we really were. Otherwise, it doesn't seem so amazing. You know, if I just think, well, I'm a pretty good person, it might take a little bit of grace of Jesus to push me over the edge and make me acceptable to God, then that, that grace is not amazing. But Paul has on purpose spent two and a half chapters talking about who we were apart from, from God's grace. And so he lets us see what God sees. He lets us see the condition of our lives apart from the, the grace of God. And so he says, whether that you're you know, the rebellious type, that you know, I'm just living for self and life is about me and, and, and what I want and heck with everybody else, I'm just going to do my thing and God can do his thing, but I'm doing my thing and I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to call the shots, be the CEO of my life for the rest of my life, or you are the respectable kind of person that, you know, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm better than most people because we compare ourselves to others. And that, that begins to, to um, develop like a sense of self-righteousness, like, you know, well, I'm not that bad, but compared to so-and-so, I'm pretty good. Therefore, God, I should be in, right? I sh we should be tight, uh, when I die, you should open up the doors of heaven and I, I'll just waltz right through. After all, I've done the best job I could possibly do. Or the religious. And the religious are also self-righteous, but they take it another step further and they become very judgmental of those they compare themselves to. And so now you tend to focus on the sins of others and you become very degrading towards those who are engaging those sins all the while you are um, blind to your own and covering them up and excluding them from how you really are perceived in God's sight. And so this is, this is what Paul says. And he says, listen, uh, it doesn't matter how bad you might have been or are. We are all in the same condition. We come into the world spiritually dead. We have no connection to God, our creator. This happened back at the fall, back in the Garden of Eden. God said, on the day you take that fruit, you will surely die. Immediately, Adam and Eve died in their spirit. The Spirit of God vacated them, and they died progressively in their soul, in their mind, will, and emotions. They began to feel things they never felt before. They began to do things they never thought they would do. And ultimately, they would die in their body. And so Jesus came into the world to reverse what sin has destroyed to give us new bodies, to transform our minds so that we can be renewed and, and live the life that Christ has called us to live and to breathe into us the spirit of God's spiritual life. It doesn't matter. There might be varying degrees of decay, but dead is dead. If you have a dead person in a casket, you can't throw the book, a book of anatomy in the casket and say, heal yourself. You need somebody else who is more powerful than you to resurrect you and give you life. And this is what Christ came to do. And this is what Paul is going to really take a deep dive into. So I'm gonna, I want to, um, on your outline, I want to define a couple of terms. The term grace, when I use the word grace, I'm looking at it from the perspective of God's undeserved gift of his favor. The undeserved gift of his favor. In other words, you don't work for grace. You don't earn grace. If you work for something and I pay you, that's a payment. That's not grace. This is undeserved favor. There's nothing I can do to deserve God's grace. He just extends it regardless of what I have done, what I am doing, or what I may do. The next big term is the word righteousness or righteous. It means to be in a right standing before God, to be made acceptable to God. That's the plainest definition I can give you. 
There are a lot of things people will do to try to make themselves acceptable to God. My wife and I traveled to Italy a few years back, and uh, Italy is primarily Roman Catholic, and so they have a lot of, um, uh, there are a lot of churches, and there are places where people can try to make themselves acceptable to God. And here's one, is you, you kind of went through this alley, and these are, there are these stone steps, and they lead up, I mean, they're long, and they lead all the way up into the to the top, and there's like a shrine up there, and so people will take their rosary, they will get on their bare knees, and they will pray, and they're trying to, to, to rid themselves of their guilt, and their shame, and their condemnation, and their sin, and they just go step by step, and pray, maybe, they might pray on one step for 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, by the time they get to the top, their knees are bloodied, all the while, they're trying to make themselves pleasing to God. They're trying to atone to make up for their sin when God wants to give them forgiveness as a free gift, but they don't understand that, and they're just constantly trying to make themselves acceptable. For some people, they just can't you know, understand, well, why, why wouldn't God just do that? I mean, I just think that some people go, well, you know, I just think what's going to happen. You know, I know the Bible talks about hell, and, and yes, some people may end up there, but I think that after a while, God in his grace is going to go down into hell and say, okay, you guys have learned your lesson. It's okay. Come on into heaven with us, the rest of us. It's going to be a great time. But this is not what the Bible teaches, and this is what Paul's trying to explain, is we try to work so hard for something that God wants to give us freely. And that's undeserved, right? It's a gift. God's not paying me because I, I, I made myself you know, so good in his sight. I did so many good things to make up for my bad things. So this passage today, we're going to answer a couple of questions that I get from people outside the faith a lot. And one of them, the question is, why do you Christians make such a big deal about Jesus? I don't get it, you know. Hey, if it's good for you, great, but it's not really that good for me. Kudos to you, but I, I just don't get the, I don't get why you make such a big deal about him. How in the world can some uh, migrant Jewish rabbi that lived 2,000 years ago have any impact or effect upon my walk and my relationship with God? And, and by the way, that whole cross thing, I mean, that, the, the blood of the lamb, I mean, that, that to me, the cross is like a cosmic child abuse. Why would God do that to his son? And so they, they just don't understand, and they're just wondering why. I don't understand the big deal, even though we celebrate Christmas every year, and really Christmas is about, all about Jesus, but we've made it about a lot of other things. But, so we're going to talk about it. Paul answers that question. The second question I get a lot is, well, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way? Uh, that just doesn't seem very fair to me. Um, that seems narrow-minded. It seems exclusive. Uh, it does not seem fair in any way, shape, or form. And, and if somebody were to come up to you and say, uh, you know, I don't get why you guys make such a big deal about Jesus. And, and why in the world would you say that Jesus is the only way that I can enter into heaven, the only way I can be made acceptable to God? And for many Christians, we, you know, we just kind of like hang our head and back away, praying that the rapture will come. So I don't have to, I can't back into that mic because I mocked it over a couple weeks ago. I should probably move it. Uh, <laughs> or you might quote, you know, well, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And you may quote that verse, but what we're looking at today in Romans 3 answers both of those questions. 
See, I don't want you to just have, um, this passage doesn't just make a declaration that he, Jesus is the only way. It gets us, gives us the explanation as to why he's the only way. He is God's undeserved, favorable gift of grace to those who will receive it. So look in Romans 3 and verse 20. We left off with that last week. Um, it says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our, of our sin. And so Paul has spent nearly two and a half chapters saying the law is an insufficient answer to the universal problem of sin. In other words, here's what most, here's what most religions do, okay? This is, this is the mindset. You might want to just jot this down. This is how religion works. It works off this premise. I obey... Therefore, I am accepted, right? So this is what Paul's talking about, the law, and those of the religious were arguing with Paul. Well, well, then why go to church, and why read the Bible, and why pray, and why do all these things if it doesn't make me acceptable to God? I've done everything you've asked me to do, right? So it doesn't matter what world religion you pull up, they all have their own law. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. I do, therefore, I will be made acceptable, Right? Do our thing, I'll be made acceptable for God. Now, there's three problems with this. Number one is this. Um, you can't change the substance of your heart simply by doing certain things. The Bible says that the human heart is, is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. It's capable of anything given the right conditions. And because of that, you know, uh, you can't change your heart by keeping certain rules any more than you can change my palate by making me eat certain stuff. Like if you put liver and onions in front of me, not having it. I don't care how you dress it up. I don't care what kind of laws you might put over on me and say, well, but if you don't eat your liver and onions, you're not going to get this. You're not going to be able to do that. I don't care. It's not changing my palate. So this is kind of what, what Paul's going to be driving at. The second reason is obeying the law has no ability to give you spiritual life. Doing certain things, not doing certain things is not what breathes spiritual life in you. The Holy Spirit is the one who breathes spiritual life in you when he enters in you, in your spirit, so that you have a connection with God. And the only way that we receive the Spirit of God is through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the avenue by which that happens. And the third reason, and really the reason what Paul's going to be talking about mostly here, is that no amount of good works can repair the damage that our bad works have done. You know, the only fruit that, that, that sin gives to us is shame, guilt, and condemnation. Now, how are you going to rid yourself of that? You can try and try and try, but it doesn't work. It can't erase it. It's there. As I said last week, sin leaves us with lasting memories. And those memories always elicit an emotional response. It's just like when you were high school, you know, you, maybe you were dating somebody and you were falling in love. It was all puppy love. And, but there was a certain song that you loved to listen to together. And every time, even 30 years later, you hear that song, your emotions immediately go back to that person, to that day, to that event, uh, you know, where you fell in love. And so this is what, this is what Paul is saying. It's like, man, you can follow and do all the good things you want to do to try to make up for the bad. 
But there are memories, and those memories are tied to emotions. And when you tie a memory to an emotion, that is a very powerful entity. But God wants to help us with that. So imagine someone breaking into your house and destroying all your most valuable possessions. And they get caught, and they're taken to court. And they stand before the judge and say, well, judge, uh, you know, I acknowledge I, I broke in, I stole stuff, I broke their valuable things. But I'll tell you, judge, I'm really a good, pretty good person. You know, I, I, um, I, I help out with the PTO at my children's school, and I, I do, and you start listing off your resume to the judge. And what if the judge were to say, well, okay, in light of all that, let's call it even. You, who were, whose home was broken into, what are you going to say? Well, that's not fair. They, 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 they busted up all my value. These are things I can't replace. They are irreplaceable. These are family heirlooms. It's, it's just not fair. And so this is what Paul would say. He's like, listen, um, what we do, the good works, cannot, cannot make up for what we have destroyed. And the Bible says that sin violates. It destroys God's glory in, in the universe and overturns his justice Psalm 89.14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And so none of us, none of us think that we are as bad as we, we really are. Not a one of us. Now you know, you think from time to time, if the world were like me, it would be such a better place. I want to challenge you with something. If you were to look in the mirror, the fact is... You are the worst sinner you've ever known. Well, so how can you say that? Well, let's take the Apostle Paul, the writer of this book. Here's what Paul said about himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, you might say, well, of course you're the worst, Paul. Uh, you are a persecutor of the church. You are putting people in prison. You are having people put to death. Well, of course you were the worst. No, 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 no. Back up. Look at that verb tense. He didn't say, I was the worst. He said, I am the worst. That is present tense. That is in spite of all that Paul has done. He's led thousands to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has planted all kinds of churches. He's written much of the New Testament, and he says, when I still look into the mirror, I come to the conclusion I am still the worst sinner I know. Here's why. Because the closer you become to Christ, and the more honest you are about yourself, and the more you allow the Word of God to be the mirror to reflect back on yourself, and the Holy Spirit begins to unsearch our hearts and our motives, and we learn about the holiness and the righteousness of God, the, the more we become aware of just really how sinful we, we are. Now, we might cover it up, and we may camouflage it, and we may excuse it away and blame others and do all those things and justify it, but this is just who we are. And so here's what he said in verse 21. But now, but now, a righteousness, all right, a standing before God, a way to be acceptable in God's sight from God, apart from the law, apart from trying to work your way there, earn your way, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This was spoken by God throughout the entire Old Testament. What were they testifying to? The coming of Jesus. 
This is why we make much about Jesus. Every single book in the Old Testament is about Christ. Every sacrifice, every typology, every covenant, everything was pointing the world to the coming of a Messiah who would provide a means which by sinful humanity could dwell in the presence of a holy God. Not because we earned our way there, not because we worked our way there, but because we received and accepted the gift of God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want to answer some questions. Number one, how do, how do you receive this gift of grace? Notice what he says in verse 22. The righteousness, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference. So faith requires an object, right? So what is faith? Faith means that you, um, you are coming to God with empty hands. Like you have nothing to offer him. You're coming, you're giving him your shattered life. I, I had a shattered life. You have a shattered life. I did things that hurt a lot of people. I, I, I was, you know, I, I was not a nice individual and I brought to God my shattered life. And so to put your faith in something means to put your trust, to put the full weight of your trust and your commitment to, into somebody on the basis of what you know about them. All right, so when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't know a lot about Jesus, but I did know that Jesus loved me, that he died for me, and he was inviting me to give him my shattered life, and in return, he would make me, he would credit to my account his righteousness, that I would stand acceptable in God's eyes, that I would receive this gift of faith through Jesus Christ. That, that's all I understood. I knew nothing else. And I barely knew that because I wasn't raised in church, never been in church much until, you know, the year before I I got saved is when I actually started in church late in my teen years. And so that's what faith is, committing yourself to someone based on what you know about them. Think of it like this. Think about when, you know, a guy and a girl start dating, right? Um, They start dating. They don't know much about each other, but over time they learn more and more about each other and they grow more and more comfortable. They fall in love and they decide, well, what we need to do is get married. You know, let's, 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 the two of us become one, right? And so they do, they, they say, well, we're going to set a date for our marriage. Now here's one of the things they don't know. They don't know what they don't know about the person they're about to marry. So they think they know each other. And they do know some things about each other. So they get married and the two shall become one. They, you know, they become one in their assets. They'll become one in their liabilities. They become one in their future. But here's what happens over the course of, of after the, the honeymoon's over. You start discovering things about that person you married you didn't know existed. Amen. You might want to retract that, Jim, before we move on. Is that the truth? I tell, I, I, I normally in premarital counsel, I tell couples, I said, there's going to come a time in your life, I don't know how long into your marriage, a year, two years, whatever, you're going to roll over and you're going to think to yourself, why in the world did I marry this person? Now, it only took my wife a week after our honeymoon <laughs> to come to that conclusion. She called her mother and said, I want to come home. I've made a mistake. What? I'm perfect. 
what? What's up with this? And her mother said, you ain't coming home. You married him. You're going to have to work it out. Best advice ever. Well, at least she's shaking her head yes. That's a step up. I'm, 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 I'm gaining traction here. And so this is what faith is doing. The same thing with Jesus is that, listen, you may not know everything about Christ. It doesn't matter. But you know that I want you to know that Jesus loves you. He died for you. And as Paul's going to give us the benefits of Christ, uh, we're going to see this in a very powerful and picturesque way so that you can put your faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus is the only one who can make you righteous in God's eyes to make you acceptable before a holy God. And Jesus is offering you that as a gift of his grace. And so the gospel is different from religion. Religion, again, is built on the premise, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel built on the premises, listen, it's already been done. Now you just receive it. And yes, I may obey the Lord, but not because I'm trying to work my way into his good graces. I, I, I obey out of gratitude for what Christ has done for me. And the deeper you go into the gospel, uh, and the more and more in love you you fall with, with Jesus. Number two, who can receive this gift of grace? Well, he says to, it's available to everyone who believes, right? It's not just for a select few, it's to everyone who believes. So what are the benefits of this? There are three words that Paul uses here that makes a picture. The word justification, the word redemption, and the word atonement. Now, some of your translations might say propitiation, in, in light of instead of atonement. So let me just paint the picture real quick of what Paul is giving us here because here, these are the benefits of receiving Christ into your life as Savior and Lord. And so uh, this whole faith issue, Paul's going to flesh that out in chapter 4. This, these benefits he's going to flesh out in chapters 5 through 8, some of the richest, wealthiest verses in all the Bible is found in chapters 5 through 8 of the book of Romans. So here's number one, is the benefit of justification to be, declared, to be declared not guilty. Excuse me. I want you to circle the word declared. This um, verse is, is really was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, a time when Christianity had been kind of hijacked and it was, became very vile and corrupt, and God brought about a reformation, reforming Christianity back to its original intent under a man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was both a Catholic priest and monk. And so here's what it says in verse uh, 24. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Paul's made that argument over and over again and are justified, how? Freely by his, his grace, freely through his grace. Now, the Roman Catholic Church in Martin's day, or Luther's day, uh, taught that justification, watch this, is a process. And the process works like this. I enter into uh, a relationship with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has seven sacraments. And so I may come as a sinful person, but if I keep engaging in the sacraments, confirmation, baptism, um, taking Eucharist, what we call the Lord's Supper, uh, last rites at your death, other things like that, that as I take, or partake in those, I become more and more righteous so that eventually 
my righteousness gets to a place where I am acceptable to God. But if I happen not to reach that pinnacle before I die, and I receive that last sacrament of last rites, I then move into purgatory where I can be purged of my sins that will make me help boost me to that level of acceptability so that I can then move into the realm, the presence of God in heaven. That's how that system works. It's the way it still works today. And so, but what does the word justified mean? Justified doesn't mean a process. It says it's declared. It's a one-time declaration. It means that when I receive Christ as my Savior and Lord, that immediately God declares me and you not guilty of every single sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future. Not something you work off, not something you earn, not something you deserve. He immediately, like the judge dropping the gavel and saying, not guilty. I declare you not guilty. It is a one-time, instantaneous event that happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a process. It is a statement of declaration. It is a courtroom term that God uses that legally in his eyes, you are no longer guilty of your sin. As Think of it this way. It is just as if I have never sinned. That's what God sees when he looks upon me. Why? Because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the word justification and righteousness are both the same Greek word used interchangeably. And so he's saying when Jesus robed me in his clothing, his righteousness, God declared me not guilty because now I am in Christ and he is in me. I don't have to get on my knees and crawl up steps and pray for 15 hours trying to gain acceptability in God's sight. I am acceptable in God's sight, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ has done for me and for you. That ought to get an amen, at least. I mean, and so, um, for example, if I, if I got accused of a crime and got hauled into court and the jury decides you know, I'm innocent of all charges, and the judge declares me not guilty, I don't have to go through a seven-step process, right? No. I'm not guilty. I'm free. I'm, my, my record is expunged. I'm, I'm free to go. This is what he's describing here. And this was really the picture. This was pictured in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. And so the sacrificial system um, it could not erase man's sin, but it could temporarily cover his sin so that God could hold off his wrath and judgment against humanity until Jesus Messiah came and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. Which brings us to the second picture, the benefit of redemption. Jesus became your substitute and he paid your, your debt. And so he goes on to say, we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ. The word redeem means to buy something back, to bring it back from destruction, to restore it. Um, some of you who are a little weird like me and, and maybe watch the movie Dumb and Dumber. And uh, in Dumb and Dumber, Lloyd trades in his van for a moped so that he and Harry can take a, a cross-country trip. 
right? And they're even going out west, and when, you know, it's, they're riding on this little moped, and, you know, and it's, it's snowing and carrying on. And so when he does this, um, Harry says to Lloyd, he says, Lloyd, just when I think you possibly couldn't do anything dumber, you redeemed yourself. I mean, this is a wonderful thing. We've got a moped instead of a van to travel all the way across the country in the wintertime. That's kind of what the picture here is. People, people use the word redeem like to buy something back. Like if you pawn something uh, and you buy it back, you're redeeming it back. When I was a kid, we had SNH green stamps. I don't know how many of you, how many of you are that old. You're old fogies. Uh, so, you know, you, every, when you go to the grocery store, you get these little stamps and they give you books and you fill up the book and uh, you, could re- you could redeem the books, so many books to, to, to um, retrieve merchandise, right? They had this big gift shop and you, so, let's say uh, this item over here took five books of, you know, stamps and so you'd f- save those up and redeem them. Th- this is the concept that redemption is, is giving to us or like here we are at Thanksgiving. What if I, what if I gave you a coupon to Kroger's for a free turkey. You go in there, buy the turkey. You go to the cashier. She's $23. Not for me, baby. Uh, You slap your coupon down and it's free. And it's free for you because somebody else paid for it, right? It's not free for the turkey because he laid down his life for that. What God is offering us through Christ is a free gift but it cost Jesus dearly, and it was no small cost. He died. He was flogged. He was crucified. He was treated like an insurrectionist, like a murderer, and he took our place, and so we receive back. We are redeemed. We are, we are redeemed because... Jesus became our substitute. He, he paid our, our debt. And the third one is the benefit of atonement. God turned his wrath towards Jesus in order to satisfy his justice. That's what the word atonement means. It says that God predestined him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's talking about the Old Testament, right? So people weren't punished because they, they would you know, take a, a lamb uh, to the tabernacle or then later to the temple. They would sacrifice that lamb. They would lay their hands on it. Their sins were transferred to the lamb. The lamb would die in their place. Their sins were covered, but they weren't forgiven. They were covered. God held back his wrath until Jesus Messiah would come and die for all of humanity's sins. That's what he's describing here. But he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in whom? In Christ, right? He's the key. He's the key to everything. Jesus absorbed God's wrath against sin because sin required a payment. Jesus, God himself, clothed himself in human flesh and said, I will pay back myself for the wrath that is just against the sin of humanity so that humanity can bypass my wrath and never have to experience it and therefore Christ will die. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, he was the thief, he was the murderer, he was the adulterer, he was all of those things that God has wrath against the sins of humanity. And so rather than making us be the recipients of his wrath, he has 
provided a bypass by which Christ has taken all of that so through him we can be forgiven, we can be loosed of our guilt and our shame and our, our condemnation, the things that haunt us for most of our lives. And so this was no easy task because it required forgiveness. And listen, forgiveness always implies suffering. If you're one doing the forgiving of somebody, you're absorbing the cost, right? You know, there's an Old Testament story where King David had an affair with Bathsheba who was married. She gets pregnant. David needs to cover it up. Uriah, her husband, is one of his leading leaders in his army. So he comes up with a plan to get him out on the front lines by himself so that he is insured of death. And so he puts together the plan. They execute the plan. Uriah dies. David tries to cover up his sin for years. Finally, for a year, finally, God sent Nathan, the prophet, to David and said, David, what in the world are you doing? And he confronted David with his sin. And so David finally had to confess his sin. And when he confessed that sin in Psalm 51, it says that God in his grace forgave him of his sin. Now, if you are Uriah's mother, if you are his son or maybe his brother, you might say, well, wait a minute here. What do you mean forgive of sin? There needs to be some payment made. There needs to be some restitution on behalf of David. This is not fair. Isn't that what we do? Because when we choose not to forgive, we keep a record of wrongs and we want people to pay. See, this is why God's grace is so amazing because we are the ones who sinned against the holy God and God doesn't require back from us restitution or payment. God, through Christ, absorbed the cost of providing you that forgiveness. That's grace, which is what God calls us to do. And so this... These benefits, uh, what do they release us from? They release us, first of all, from pride. He says, listen, where's the boasting? Uh, on Those who observe the law? No, but in faith. And so, in other words, what Paul is just simply saying uh, in verses 27, 28, ain't nobody getting to heaven and going to be boasting about how you got there. We all get there the same way, through Jesus Christ alone. That's why he is the only way. He's the only payment for sin that God ever rendered on behalf of humanity. So the minute you bring your good works to the table of grace, you have nullified grace. It's not something you earn. It's not something you deserve. It's just something you receive as a gift through faith in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. It rids us of prejudice in verses 29 and 30. He says, listen, I don't care if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, we cannot be prejudiced against others, especially if we start comparing ourselves and their sins and their ethnicity or whatever else we're comparing. He said, look, in, in God's eyes, we're all in the same boat and we all have the same solution. And then he says, don't presume anything Hey, uh, he says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. In other words, people will say, well, hey, I, since I'm saved by grace, all of my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, we might as well just sin it up as much as we can because after all, I'm just displaying God's grace in a much greater way. Now, Paul will deal with this in Romans chapter 6, but he's saying, no, 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 that's, 
That's not how it works. The law just reminds us of our, our need for Christ more than anything. Now, I want you to take, look at your outline because I want to reverse this for a minute. And this is this to the end right here. All right? Look at these benefits. Christ came into the world and he dies on a cross. He atoned for our sins. So God has, what? God, through Christ, turned his wrath against sin upon his son on our behalf. And the reason he did that, because of redemption. Jesus became our substitute and the one who would pay our debt. And the reason why we get the benefit of justification to be declared not guilty in the eyes of God is because Jesus became our substitute and paid our debt because God turned his wrath upon him and satisfied his own justice. Therefore, by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become righteous. We become acceptable in God's eyes. We stand in his presence, not because we earned it, not because we deserved it. It is a gift of God and a gift of his favor. That is what it means to be gripped by grace. Let's bow our heads together. Now, I don't know where you are in, in your thought process, your relationship with Jesus, but I know, I know some people say, well, pastor, you don't understand the things that I've done, how bad they are, and you know, da yada yada yada, and I don't think I deserve heaven. I deserve hell. I deserve I deserve paying for everything I ever done. I've ever done. I, I deserve that. No, no, my friend, you you do deserve that, but God doesn't want you to experience that. God's love for you is far greater than that. There's nothing you could ever have done that extends beyond the realm of the reach of God's grace in your life. He says, this is available for anyone who is willing to step out in faith and trust in Christ and what you know about him. And I've just shared a lot of stuff about him. He became the reason why you can be justified. He, he died in your place. He lived the life you couldn't live, and he died a death that you could not die to pay a price that you could not pay. God offers the same gift to everyone in the same way, by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. You're asking Jesus to be the Savior and the Lord of your life. And God says it's a free gift. All you have to do is reach out and receive it. And so right now, if, if there's something going on in your heart, there's just like a tugging, it's probably God's Holy Spirit just like knocking on the door of your heart and saying, please open the door. I want to come in and I want to be with you and I want to have a relationship and I want us to do life together. In fact, I want us to do eternity together. That's the extent of God's grace. It lasts for all of eternity. But what Jesus won't do is kick down the door of your heart. He extends it. The Holy Spirit's drawing you, but you must make the ultimate decision. And I would dare say, like most people, if they were to give a testimony, what brought them to that moment and point in their life where they were willing and even open to receiving Christ is because something has happened in your life. Maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was the death of a child. Maybe a loss of job. Maybe it's something you've done. There's a thousand different things that it could be, but it is a wake-up call. And God's saying, listen, I love you. I want to forgive. Jesus died for you. 
I want to remove the guilt, the shame, the condemnation. In fact, here's what Paul says, Roman 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what God wants for you. And I pray that this morning you'll open up your heart and you'll call out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a, I agree. I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. And I believe that Jesus came and died for me, just like the pastor talked about. And I'm asking you, Father, to forgive me, to be my Savior, to be my Lord, to remove my guilt and shame and condemnation. I want to have a relationship with you. If you'll just cry out to the Father, he will respond to that cry. Put your weight, your your faith and trust in Jesus and him alone. Not your works, just in Christ. And see what he'll do. So Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. And Lord, we just celebrate right now for those who are perhaps giving their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those, Father, maybe this was just a wake-up call. And Lord, we just lost a sense of gratitude for the extent of love that you have displayed for us through the gospel. And God, we just want to go deeper with Jesus. Right now, he's just kind of surface. He's just kind of on the back burner of our lives. And Lord, we want to go all in with Christ. And we want to go deeper in the gospel and, and just grow and mature in our walk and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in greater ways now and in the future. So Lord, whatever work you're doing here this morning, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is doing what only he can do as he is speaking to hearts and changing lives. And we thank you and praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand as we close our time of